Hello and welcome to Polytrope, the podcast of many twists, turns, and torment. Many of us are going through some level of torment, whether it's agonizing or low grade at the moment. Um, we just finished our first week of lockdown here in San Francisco and have some number of weeks to go. Torment, of course, derives from the Latin for to twist and ultimately torture. Um, but torment also, uh, at least in Spanish and some of the other Latin languages, tormenta can mean a storm, stormy times. And it's an appropriate word for polytrope, which is inspired by the word polytropos, many turning, uh, a word used to describe Odysseus uh, and his adventures. And of course, he's someone who endured many storms, many twists. And I, I hope that uh, you all do the same. And uh, we probably have many twists and turns to go. This is going to be uh, a podcast about coronavirus in sort of the most philosophical, abstract sense. So um, I guess I have a double warning for you. One is the subject matter will be a, a grim one. And then secondly, it'll, it might come off as sort of inhuman or... Uh, needlessly abstract people are already dying and suffering um, and I guess all I'll say to that is, is I acknowledge that uh, but you know for some people the abstract is deeply personal and I think that's true for me so I hope that this doesn't come off as insensitive rather this is the way that I'm making sense of things at these earliest stages and I figure the time is now to be abstract because things are probably going to get more and more concrete in the weeks and months to come. So I want to ground today's discussion of COVID in um, actually in a book that I read at the end of last year called uh, Hyperobjects, Philosophy and Ecology After the End of the World by Timothy Morton. This book really struck me and it's probably my my top read of 2019. I even created a Twitter account f to discuss the matters in it um, called Hyper Objective. So you can follow that Twitter account, although it's sort of dormant. Um, maybe this will resuscitate some of uh, the activity there. And... Um, the book is predicated on a philosophy that I wasn't familiar with called object-oriented ontology and some books by, uh, I forget his first name, but his last name I think is Harmon, speculative realism. There's just this whole movement that I wasn't aware of and still not really aware of. Hyperobjects was the first book that I read in this domain. And um, global warming is the central um subject of the book uh, it's the it's the main hyper object that the book deals with um, but as we'll see coronavirus is also a hyper object and displays many of the same characteristics what is a hyper object i think we'll we'll talk about it in more detail but um, one way of thinking about a hyper object is a higher dimension object than the objects we're used to. So uh, 
in a hyper-objective world or a world of hyper-objects. Really, everything is an object. Objects are real, um, but some objects are bigger than others. And global warming is an object. And one of the qualities of higher dimension objects is to lower dimension beings they often seem like processes or things unfolding over time or happenings that can be measured. But really, there's sort of a flatness to Morton's philosophy, like, no, global warming is itself just an object, just as we're an object, and we're an object inside this larger object. And when you're inside a larger object, your experience of that object is very weird, um, but also somewhat predictable. In other words, it shares sort of common qualities. We're going to talk about those qualities and observe how those qualities uh, pertain to coronavirus, another another hyperobject, another object that we find ourselves inside and um, sort of at the mercy of. So maybe I'll start with this passage um, that Morton um, kicks off a chapter called The End of the World With. And again, this is his book is all about global warming. You're walking out of the supermarket. As you approach your car, a stranger calls out, hey, funny weather today. With a due sense of caution, is she a global warming denier or not? You reply, yes. There's a slight hesitation. Is it because she is thinking of saying something about global warming? In any case, the hesitation induced you to think of it. Congratulations. You are living proof that you've entered the time of hyperobjects. Why? You can no longer have a routine conversation about the weather with a stranger. The presence of global warming looms into the conversation like a shadow, introducing strange gaps. Or global warming is spoken of. Either way, the reality is strange. A hyperobject has ruined the weather conversation, which functions as part of a neutral screen that enables us to have a human drama in the foreground. In an age of global warming, there is no background, and thus there is no foreground. It is the end of the world, since worlds depend on backgrounds and foregrounds. World is a fragile aesthetic effect around whose corners we are beginning to see. True planetary awareness is the creeping realization, not that we are the world, but that we aren't. And he goes on from there, but I think it's a good entry point to talk about the coronavirus, because like global warming, the coronavirus has sort of uh, obliterated all the the neutral screens all the backgrounds in our lives uh, of course shaking hands was the first thing to go um, sneezing and coughing uh, intimacy touch all those have become sort of um, instead of neutral backgrounds or backdrops for day-to-day -day life they are now actually the text itself of everyday life and that's kind of uh, at the heart of one of the qualities that Morton describes hyperobjects having, which is viscosity. In a sense, we're sort of glued to our situation. Um, there's an inescapability um, to, to our situation. Um, we'll talk more about that. But um, the way that coronavirus sticks to us, um, the way that there is no escaping from it, and the way that it sort of intrudes on all aspects of life, including the most mundane, and in a way, especially the most mundane, it is a typical quality of hyperobjects. Another quality that Morton goes on to talk about is non-locality. Um, and again, he's, he's kind of a, a crack philosopher, like 
one of the effects of his writing is to confuse and bewilder and humiliate and to create claustrophobia. And I think all that is intentional. So he's not going to be a particularly like rigorous or even, I would say, logical reasoner. Um, that's kind of his non-goal. And so as I present these qualities, uh, if they don't make sense or if you don't believe them, um, I'm kind of just the messenger and, and I, I don't fully comprehend these categorizations either but I, I kind of get a gist or I get a sense or I get a felt sense and I think that's um, it's that felt sense that I think is what makes the book so successful um, of that claustrophobia of that intrusion so non-locality well one question we could ask is where is the coronavirus and there's no shortage of maps um, pointing to it cropping up in, of course, first China, and then Italy, and then the United States, the rest of Europe. Um, is it in all those places? Is it in none of those places? Where is the virus? Um, and what we find is it kind of has a non-locality to it, which is not to say that it's nowhere, um, but more that it's kind of uh, massively distributed in ways that defy typical reasoning. It reminds me a little bit of when you know, you ask what what's the most what's the largest organism? I think it's some mycelium in Oregon that you would never think of as an object, but actually is one single organism that appears over thousands and thousands of acres of forest. But underneath, I guess at some point, it is this sort of interconnected being. And um, coronavirus is a little bit like that, although in ways that maybe uh, are are too philosophical. Or, or even kind of bullshit to talk about because, uh, of course, I don't think that the virus is at any point converging either underground or above ground. Um, and yet it would also be just as wrong to sort of say that there are many coronaviruses, at least as far as we know. Maybe each region has its own specific variants. Um, in any case, it's this non-locality, it's non-wareness that uh, is another quality of hyperobjects, just as we would sort of say, where is global warming? Well, we could point to many areas where it's manifesting, um, but we can't point to one locality or one locale that it belongs. All the same, that doesn't mean that it doesn't have physical presence, right? The third quality that for me is one of the most striking and most disturbing qualities of the coronavirus by the way, talking about locality, even the name coronavirus, right? Well, it's the coronavirus has been around for ever and uh, has had other names in the past. I think SARS or H1N1, I think all those are coronaviruses. So this is like novel coronavirus, COVID-19. I'm just going to call it the coronavirus, but that's also a quality of the hyperobject, right? Like we even have trouble naming these things. Anyway, the third quality that Morton talks about is temporal undulation. Um, this sort of strange way that these hyperobjects appear in time and defy time and sort of quickly falsify the idea of time as any kind of neutral background or a container that is home to objects, rather objects emit space time. And, uh, Morton uses, of course, relativity as like a as a basic example. So if you're on a plane, um, the clock goes faster 
Um, and that's sort of like a, just a measurable truth around space-time. And um, hyperobjects, as very, very large, enormous objects, have similar weird qualities with time that break our mental models of time as sort of a canvas on which objects are painted. One of my teachers describes being on a very, very long train, and the train is going around a curve, and you can see the front of the train collide with a mountain and start to sort of accordion up um, as it gets nastily derailed. And you can see all this from your window because you're sort of around the curve and well behind the moment. And so in some sense, the crash hasn't happened yet. Um, and of course, in some sense, it already has. It's that, that kind of temporal weirdness, temporal undulation that is characteristic of very large object, objects, hyper-objects, and coronavirus. This is, after week one, I would say, my strongest bewilderment. Um, when this started to become clear that it was going to be a, a beast, a pandemic, ooh, I looked for comparable experiences in in my life and the the closest one that I could think of was 9-11 where um, when I was living in New York in high school and um, very different but but had that shared quality of being a communal disaster like there's while people had very deeply personal tragedies and people lost loved ones, there was also something very shared about the experience. We almost had to had to look toward each other and to each other to check in, like what's going on? How do we how do we react? And it, and it had that same inescapability. I mean, there was no way to live outside of that tragedy. But imagine if. 9-11 happened in super slow motion such that instead of unfolding over the course of a few hours in the morning it unfolded over the course of weeks or even months and you could watch on cnn or whatever the plane flying into the tower and it sort of has this inevitability and certainly unavoidability to it um what do you what do you do like is it is it it's too early to mourn because nobody has died yet and yet we know that many many people are going to die um there are things we could start trying to do and so coronavirus has this quality right and we can um it's not too late in some senses and we can uh and should and have distanced each other distanced from each other but and also, in some senses, like the the thing is already happening. It's already happened, and um, we kind of know how this plays out. We just don't necessarily know to what degree or to what extent. And I think that's like an incredibly disturbing fact. Um, I'm not uh, at all like a psychology expert. Um, by any stretch, but from what little I know of trauma, trauma has this quality of um, brokenness in time, 
that one of the characteristics of trauma is that you kind of are forced to live out the traumatic moment as if it were in the present or the near future over and over again. So because you don't have that story or that integrated um, narrative of what happened to you at, let's say, such and such a moment, then in your interactions with others or in your psyche at a moment-to-moment basis, you're living it as if it's happening now. And um, like coronavirus, trauma is one of the few mental disorders that's grounded in fact. One doesn't hallucinate. It's, it's almost the opposite of hallucination or of um, fantasy. It is the very felt, very real reliving of the actual moment. Um, and because this crisis is playing out so slowly, we're all sort of traumatized in the sense that there is no orienting toward it. One is either sort of prematurely mourning it or in a kind of state of denial. We're either ahead or behind things, but never quite on time. Of course, um, there will be individual differences in terms of the impact that this pandemic has on us and those differences will largely fall along socioeconomic lines. Um, We're already seeing unemployment spike and it will continue to spike and hit hardest those who uh, work in, we know, food, um, transportation, hospitality. Um, We see that while there's no shortage of work, the people working in kind of the front lines in healthcare are going to be deeply affected. And those uh, least affected are people like me who are um, basically just sort of seeing work life evolve in ways that's already been evolving. So we're using Zoom a lot more and I'm figuring out how to make the home a workspace. And um, of course, not minimizing the psychological problems that will arise for all sorts of different groups. But I just think about having to get on the BART and go to work and be a cashier somewhere and um, do that job at this time and hope that I don't lose the job and also be completely freaked out while I have the job. And um, yeah, I, I just, when we talk about traumas and difficulties, I'm only talking about them in the most general ways, which is to sort of say that the unfolding, the temporal undulation of this pandemic itself is conducive to creating trauma or is almost inherently traumatic for everyone. And then there are those for whom the requirements of their everyday life thrust them into uh, the shit directly. And then the last quality that Morton talks about extensively is is in some ways the most abstract, but also uh, a deeply felt one, which is what he calls interobjectivity. So just a, a roundup of the four qualities we talked about, viscosity, that stuckness or gluedness to the situation, the way it inserts itself and oozes into every living moment, 
non-locality, the impossibility of locating or pointing to the hyperobject, temporal undulation, the way um, the hyperobject emits time, emits space-time in very strange and disorienting ways, and refutes any concept of time as something neutral or independent. And then interobjectivity, which I take to mean something like the way that objects interact with each other. So the object of me and the object of coronavirus and how they interact. And one of the qualities of hyperobjects and objects in general, according to Morton, is withdrawal, which is to say that the moment you use or interact with an object, it becomes like a tool and the real object withdraws and instead you sort of work with the object as tool. Um, this is borrowed from Heidegger who I, I don't I don't know but Heidegger has kind of a an evocative image of of you know wielding a hammer and when you're just using the hammer the object is withdrawn in other words like you're, you don't your arm connects with a hammer and acts as sort of one integrated thing. You have no notion of the hammer at that moment. It's only when the hammer, let's say, breaks that the object comes fully into your world. And I certainly feel that happening um, now in the sense that like all sorts of decisions and activities that would normally be fluid or you could say in flow or we just sort of happen naturally i'm just sort of surrounded by broken hammers and basic activities and actions feel much more clunky than they ever have and i, I talk to a lot of people who are experiencing a similar sort of like low-grade anxiety that of course has many causes but one of which i think has to be this weird like uh, deluge of decisions that have been thrust upon us. Hey, should we meet? Well, yeah, let's try to meet online. Well, we were going to do offline, but we can meet in two weeks. Yeah, but that's going to be too much time. So let's go ahead and meet online. Um, hey, uh, my mother is 74 and needs surgery. Should she move it up? Um, and try to have it earlier, um, but that might present its own kind of risks. Um, somebody else's parent um, is traveling abroad and was meant to go back home to Europe in a couple of weeks, but um, that might not be possible. So should she go home now and risk infection on the plane rides? Well, the flights are very cheap, should we buy a couple of seats so that she would have no one sitting next to her? If she does contract it, would she rather be treated in the United States or in Europe? Well, the United States system is likely to get um, over flooded, but has high health care. She could be at home, but um, they seem to be uh, behind the curve. So while the situation seems better right now, it's hard to tell where it'll be in two weeks. This, this kind of constant like um, brokenness uh, uh, of sort of 
things that I would say normally would have been quite easy to do. I, I, I'm, I find that um, to be a quality of, of coronavirus. And I take that to be what Morton's talking about when he talks about interobjectivity, the way that um, we think we make decisions all the time, but the reality is we very rarely make decisions. Things just sort of happen as the natural outcome. And it's only when um, things start to break that decisions have to be made. And I think in this world where um, objects are now thrust onto us because of the brokenness of various different systems, uh, I just think there's a huge amount of cognitive overhead. Um, I want to talk about toilet paper. But before I do, I, I just want to comment on, for me, one of the deepest insights that Morton has, because despite the title and the tone, it is not a pessimistic book. Um, it is not a book that is resigned to our fates. Um, rather, I think it is a call to action. It's just a call to action in a radically different world than the one we think of ourselves in. When he talks about the end of the world, it's the end of the capital W world, the end of the idea of a world that is somehow existent without us. Um, we started making our footprint on the world with coal and the Industrial Revolution and later with uh, nuclear activity. We live in what he calls and what other thinkers call the Anthropocene, um, the geological period that is informed by human activity. And so the time is over to imagine saving the capital W world or, um, uh, you know, when you think about saving the world, you maybe think about sort of sloping green hills and a pastoral scene. And of course, that's, that's our fantasy of what the, the world looks like when it's saved. Um, so, so Morton is not being pessimistic. Uh, I think Morton is just advancing a new way of being with things that is very strange and very alien. And part of that is is what I see as a very deep insight, which is what he says, uh, he calls it, um, increasing science is not increasing demystification. Uh, I think we have such a, such a firm belief that the more science we do and the more we know, the more things should make sense. And we can see that that's just simply not happening here um, with the coronavirus talk to a few people who who say well yeah you know humans are really bad at understanding exponential functions and um, of course that's true humans are bad at math in general that's true um, we're certainly being challenged but it's it's not just simply that uh, if everyone walked around knowing how exponential curves work we would somehow be out of this mess um, experts don't know, and we continue to have orders of magnitude of difference in terms of the best case to the worst case scenario. And part of that has to do with just the messiness and the entangledness of this thing, um, in part because, of course, the way that we act in the next few weeks will um, impact the numbers. Um, but of course, uh, the relationship between the way we act and the numbers and the, the delay between that, the delay of, let's say, two weeks between social distancing and the effects of social distancing, 
uh, that has a strange calculus as well because if people, for instance, see things start to get better, then they may change their behavior and um, um, we might end up shooting ourselves in the foot. It's not even clear still if social distancing is exactly the best behavior. I mean, it certainly certainly is helpful to flatten the curve and that, that that's a real thing, but um, we're not sure if there's a way out of this mess other than um, basically everyone getting it at some point. Mm. So um, I guess the, the, the key point here is just, yes, we're bad at understanding these kinds of things, but there's also an inherent quality to these kinds of things that make it impossible for humans to orient themselves to because humans are themselves enmeshed in and entangled by. And so all those qualities, when we talk about viscosity and temporal undulation, th those make it incredibly difficult and really impossible to um, gain confidence around what outcomes will be. And in fact, it's not clear to me these days what what our relationship with measurements should be. Um, of course, like we should social distance, we should stay at home, etc. Um, but um, there's a proliferation of op-eds and science and research, uh, all of which is disagreeing with it. And it's not that that research should stop or anything like that, but as consumers, we should potentially stop looking for consensus or stop looking for a unified signal because such a signal is unlikely to come. And at any given moment, um, the data will be highly conducive to a series of different interpretations. So increasing science is not increasing demystification. And in fact, as we become better and better scientists and better and better at measuring the very things that we're entangled in, we should expect things to get uh, more complicated, not less. Um, he says, paraphrasing Copernicus, um, there is no center and we're not even in it. And there's not even an edge. Um, orientation is is uh, difficult or impossible in, in such a world. Okay, I just want to I just want to close up with um, toilet paper. So when this crisis start, first started to hit, people went out and bought tons and tons of toilet paper, and then they were. Um, roundly mocked. Of course, now here we are in our apartment running out of toilet paper and there isn't any. Amazon itself is out of stock. But what is it with this obsession with toilet paper? That's that's what's been on my mind all week. Why, why toilet paper? And I have kind of a hyper-object-laden interpretation of why. Um, quoting Jacques Lacan, um, the problem with human society is what to do with one's shit. And Morton um, uses that quote to kind of go on a really compelling rant that that is grounded in, in a claim that I, I love and has stuck with me with the book, uh, which is, there is no away. That's, that's sort of the deep truth of 
uh, hyperobject, the book, and the new reality that we find ourselves in. There is no away. There is no flushing the shit down the toilet. The shit gets flushed down the toilet, (laughs) then goes to some waste area where it is processed imperfectly, and maybe a bird eats the shit and gets some sort of bacterial um, infection that is then passed to a pig which is living in close quarters with a human because it's been domesticated and then the human gets the infection, right? There is no way, there is no flushing. And I think what we see with this strange frenzy to buy toilet paper is a final clinging to the fantasy of a way to the wish for a clean ass the wish for a fully flushed toilet that leaves no remains of waste just as with nuclear waste we we bury it we put it away but there is no there is no away it does come back to us that is the truth of the anthropocene and so with with the toilet paper frenzy i don't actually see something irrelevant or something to laugh at i see something as like a very poignant truth of this stretch of human modernity that we're at it is the death throes of wanting there to be in a way and uh if we just get enough toilet paper um, maybe we can keep ourselves clean Um, of course as we're seeing and as the lesson of global warming and coronavirus and other crises to come um, there is no way and the sooner we orient ourselves to a world in which um, we're constantly reckoning with our own waste um, the better okay that's it for this episode wishing you health and safety and see you next time